from the west side of Charlotte, North Carolina. This is Care for Good. Care for Good. A collection of stories and conversations with the kinfolk of QC Family Tree. 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 Listen in as we seek to awaken the popular imagination to new possibilities of abundance and spark social action for the common good. I'm one of the kinfolk. My name is Helms Cheryl. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. In this episode, we'll talk about self-care and Sabbath as resistance. Angela Whitenhill is a clergy activist and faith community justice educator and is known for organizing in such a way that pays close attention to the nuanced intersections of social identity, religious belief, and mental health. Active in her congregation, Covenant Christian Church Disciples of Christ, Angela co-leads racial justice efforts through an ecumenical cohort of churches in Cary, North Carolina, by the name of Community in the Heart of Christ. A graduate of University of Denver and Union Theological Seminary in New York City, Angela holds two master's degrees, a Master of Divinity and a Master of Social Work, and earned a certificate in marriage and family therapy from the Denver Family Institute, where she also served as a psychotherapist at the Institute's community clinic. My name is Angela Whitenhill, and I'm the Mental Health Initiative Manager at the National Dev Association Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Really, that work does uh, mental health ministry and programming throughout our denomination. Um, but there's a there's an element of it that does do clergy mental health work. And before starting this position, I was active in uh, racial justice activism advocacy in Denver. And a lot of my role there was to think about how we as activists are properly balancing our work and our own self care and our own you know tending to ourselves in the process. Um, before that, I was a chaplain at Tennyson Center for Children in Denver, where I did work with the, stu- the students or kids that we served, but also served the therapists and the administrators there that did this really tough work. So I just found myself always tending to the caregivers or paying attention to people who are doing really awesome work in human service fields, you know, um, who typically um, have that altruistic spirit and don't think about their self so much. I am a culprit, I mean, I, I, not culprit, but I am one to be really into work and be really into ministry and helping others myself and somehow putting myself on the back burner. So I stand as a therapist, a pastor, an activist, um, and kind of journey through each of those moments. All that to say, at the end of the day, what is meaningful, this is something I constantly come back to, in fact, I'm kind of thinking through it right now in my life, is why, you know, what is this all for? And most recently, I've been really sitting with this idea of balancing having a life of purpose, having a life that is going to speak truth, um, regardless of how it's taken, but being honest to what I'm called to do, um, the image of God that God has put in me, like being authentically who I am and enjoying life. And I think I can go one way or another. I either enjoy life or I get really into my purpose and being this being on life. And so I'm right now trying to figure out how do I, or the meaning would be, I really want to live out my purpose and I also want to enjoy life. That somehow I'm, it is okay for me to enjoy abundant life in the process of my ministry. I think that's kind of the core. And then also having meaningful relationships, I'm realizing are much more valuable as I get older. Like who are my friends? Who can I call? Who can I enjoy life with? 
which is something that changes. So, you know, who's my community, really? I'm very much tied to who is my community and how can I rely on community and not just serve community at the same time. So, mm, Yeah, that sounds like a really important thing. It also sounds like a component of self-care. Because I feel like, because um, we're going to be talking about Sabbath, but also self-care. And right now, the people in the movement who are talking about self-care are very much like talking nearly almost exclusively individually like trying to take care of the body that and the self who is um risking and has a and because of being a disruptor has a cost involved um physically and emotionally and being a part of the movement and so there's like a lot of trendy conversation about self-care but it almost always sounds at least like it's just for that one person to be seeking for themselves, which I think is important, but it doesn't seem to be like the fullest part. And so you're bringing in like community life into self-care. I mean, I went through my stage of having to like tend to myself because I'm, you know, the blood rushing, like I'm triaging myself. But I do think as you evolve with self-care or Sabbath, it, to me, it always brings you back to community. And I think as an activist, a pastor, an artist, someone who has a heart for others, it's very easy for us to identify as the responsible one, the leader, the activist, the person who has to get it done. It's really hard for us to depend on the community we're helping. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a, um, our own disconnect. And so for me, self-care cannot just be me taking care of myself so I can go take care of everybody else. It's literally having the very community I serve take care of me, which is very hard to receive support or to receive some sort of mutual dependence because now I'm equal, right? right. Now we're actual peers. And sometimes it's easy for me as a minister or an activist to kind of be like, I'm in here to help save the day. But that is the very individualistic, you know, kind of power identity that is we're trying to fight against. And so... Mm-hmm. This idea of equity being I mutually depend on you for my own soul or my own self-care or my own health, just as much as you depend on me for you know fighting for justice for you, that that's the new moment of communal self-care or Sabbath that I'm learning myself. Like I can't, I'm not an island, even when it comes to taking care of myself, which is hard to receive if you're a giver. So really hard. And I think really uncommon. There's a risk involved. A big risk. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like the work here at Family Tree. There, there's the way that I take care of them myself. There are people that I can list that take care of me. And then there's also the people that I take care of, and those things don't overlap very often. Like, like I want them to. I really want for the people that I take care of to also take care of me. And maybe I've set it up in a way. I likely have set it up in a way that those that there's some boundaries there that I've created out of whatever it is, fear or power or blindness. But I think in moments of difficulty, not necessarily going to call on the neighbor across the street. There are some things I'll call on like, um, can you help me because I have too many kids at youth group and I need somebody to take my child to soccer. Okay. Well, that's like a, a less threatening ask. But like, I'm in the midst of crisis and I can't make coffee right now because I can't think, (laughs) you know, like that's not going to be a time necessarily yet that I have come to the place where I can call someone in the neighborhood for which I feel like I am serving. But then there are other people who are that I'm not, that I wouldn't think of in the like I'm serving category that I would call for help. You have categories of people in your life that you know, like this is this is your the people that you're gonna call on when you need something, and those people differ. But if you're in a like a a social care kind of situation, I feel like the way you make those decisions is different than if you're just um, you know like working a regular job and then you have your care group or whatever. Yeah, I think you're naming like the. the the nuance and the trickiness of like bound, having healthy boundaries, right? So there are people we serve, in my opinion, that it wouldn't be responsible to expect a certain type of care from them because I'm coming as a place of power or I'm there for a certain job or 
um, that's just not our the, the covenant we made with each other, that mm-hmm. I'm going to lean on you mutually in some ways. Um, and I think it depends on your role, right? But I also feel like it is, there's like these different seasons. And I, I was kind of not caught off guard, but what I named is like, wow, God is bringing me to a place where the space, I, ser- I serve kind of more in the faith community where I do work now, that the difference between when I actually served in the community in Denver doing racial justice work and now more serving in a faith context is this new mutuality where maybe I'm there to share these ideas with them or help grow us, but if I'm having a bad day, my elder will reach out to me. And it's weird when it's kind of like, wait, I'm here to help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I think it does depend on your context and what you agreed upon, but there is something about if, if the community I'm serving, if we haven't agreed upon us being mutual in that kind of way, then there is a season as to which I can serve because I, there, there's something about being peers or being equal or being mutually dependent that, um, that we need to be whole. And I found myself never in those relationships, if that makes sense. Like I was always leading or always not, even though I had other friends who helped me, but, um, this idea of being uh, at least community work, what does it mean to really be endowed to one another? And mm-hmm. how do you set that up in the beginning? And I'm literally in that moment now where I'm like, wow, this is a different type of mutual dependence than before. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a new thing for mm-hmm. me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, Greg is in um, a cohort, it's a new thing called Common Change, and it's being uh, led by Walter Brueggemann, John McKnight, and Peter Block. So you can sign up for their, like, I think they maybe even do daily updates or something. I think it's called Common Good or something. Anyway, but one of them was about covenantal relationship and um, figuring out how to have covenantal relationship within neighborhood. I went to a a workshop about how can we create an environment in which we don't call the police for everything under the sun. And so we were brainstorming some of that and some of it's really obvious, you know, like if there's somebody on my porch that needs some food, give them some food, let them hang out, don't call the police or call your neighbor and say, Hey, there's somebody on my porch. Just want to let you know it's cool with me, but just want to tell somebody else so that they're aware. So that seemed obvious, but there were a few question marks for me about, you know, we haven't necessarily come up with some kind of group agreement that if if someone's uh, choking or if someone is experienced something that they feel is unsafe, we haven't said, call me first, you know, or we haven't come to some agree- agreement that we're going to set up a little blue light out in the backyard where everybody can see it. And if the blue light is on, then you come to the rescue, you know? And I've been thinking about, Wouldn't that be interesting if we did? Like, what if we had some kind of covenantal relationship? Because there's some some unwritten rules about, like, I know I'd go to so-and-so for whatever. But at the same time, wouldn't it be cool if we came up with some some covenant relationship ways of, like, we keep us safe type thing? So that... I hadn't thought of that in the the realm of self-care or Sabbath. But I think it would be really interesting to explore and to think through. Knowing, like just personally knowing my limits. And so now one thing I'm doing with my group that I do work with is going, I can like I, I can go three weeks with my job and then I will get burnt out. And so they're almost going, hey, Angela, are you sure you can do this next meeting? And I'm like, thank you for keeping me accountable. <laughs> right. Because you're essentially being my, my accountability. So yeah, this, that, that's cool what you think, like a communal covenant for for safety or these kind of expected roles that, that we give room to be flexible, right? We might mm-hmm. change that out over time, but this an intentional conversation about those unspoken things is really neat if, if you're able to be that close and communicate ahead of time. Mm-hmm. How does Sabbath and self-care play the ways in which you minister? No, I appreciate that. Um, so the National Love Association, I serve as a mental health initiative manager. We um, started a mental health initiative um, full-time in this past 2017, but was really starting this out of a resolution our church, our denomination came with wanting to break stigma in our church across the church. And so part of the, the task is to really break stigma across life the church around mental health. And some of that is me doing workshops, 
having teams of clinicians and pastors writing up resources, then doing workshops, but kind of like this collective effort of breaking stigma. Um, and a part of it that has come out is our leaders, whether they're our clergy leaders, our lay leaders, who have their own relationship with mental health issues, feeling like they can't express their who they really are and be honest with their congregations or their administration because of the stigma. So there's this whole pocket of mental health. I mean, clergy wellness or self-care or, you know, this idea of clergy taking Sabbath or being vulnerable or needing, asking for help and systemically setting up the, the denomination that that is um, encouraged and backed and supported. And so um, part of that work has been what do we as leaders, so whether we're clergy or activists or, or community leaders, um, how are we seen? How are we identifying ourselves with the people we serve? And historically, pastors and clergy have been you know, deemed as closest to God or the people who are supposed to kind of have it all together and be the people who take care of everyone. But this idea of a clergy saying, hey, I struggle with this and, and I want my congregation to know is, is radical. It's new. And it causes a certain type of relationship where the congregation must go, hey, we affirm who you are. We're going to support what you have um, systemically and relationally and walk alongside with you as you literally help us spiritually develop a walk alongside of us. So to do that, there is this kind of internal work, that individual self-care that you have to, A, know your, your limits, be comfortable in being open about where you really are, having the right people to encourage you, and then navigating the balance of when to tell, how to tell, who to tell, you know, how do you assess um, who they but part of Sabbath or self-care is assessing who is actually healthy for you or safe in that moment. Um, all that to say, it's, it's this it's this kind of uh, multi-faceted kind of moment for a, a leader um, to, to know their limits, to know when, they've, when they need help or when they are fine. And personally, in my own role, kind of weaving in and out all, this, all these spaces, I'm flying around, I'm serving, I'm writing. I also have my limits and it's balancing when I can say yes to something, when I can respond to something. And through my own self-care or Sabbath journey, I'm literally walking with clergy and saying, well, here's what happened to me when I hit that. And I had to tell my, my constituents, here's where I'm at. Um, so I don't know if that answers that kind of question or that makes sense in a way. Yeah. I was last year we had Jasmine Hines who lives here in Charlotte help to lead a self-care um, curriculum for our interns and Jasmine used a book called self-care matters um, as a kind of go-to and I think the person's name is Ananda Harris who wrote the book I'll need to look that up but anyway um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the book was that it it talked about kind of like the emotional self-care of, you know, for example, being an introvert and needing time to be by yourself or um, taking some time to meditate or whatever, that kind of self-care. But then it also talked about financial self-care and social self-care and have kind of this little wheel of ways that you take care of yourself so that you don't, uh, so that you don't, ignore one which I thought was really interesting so what what are your go-to's like what do you think of when you say like okay I, ne I know I need to take care of myself what do you mean by that what what's what I've noticed about me and also the clergy I work with now it's I love the wheels the balancing I think I actually in my head have these circles where there's like my spiritual self my sexual self my social self my physical self that I think of it as identities. So I'm really big on starting self-care or Sabbath out of my social identity. I can't ignore that I'm a black or African-American woman, that my age is this, that my sexual orientation is this, or I have to name who I am and what those identities mean to me. Um, kind of put in these little bubbles and then ask myself every week, you know, how many, has that, has that Angela come out? Has, you know, the maybe the millennial side of Angela, whatever that means, but there's these trends. Is the millennial Angela come out? Has the black Angela come out? Has um, the, I'm an athlete. So has Angela actualized this kind of athletic identity this week? And I find myself, if I go too long, 
that my athletic identity hasn't expressed itself or my clergy identity, then I start getting a little unbalanced. Um, so I, it's probably similar to that book, but this idea of all the parts of me that are good, that are my identity, and allowing each one of those parts to be nurtured and to be expressed. Um, and I can feel myself if I'm doing clergy work for like three months at a time and I have not been creative in, in terms of an artistic, I like, I'm an artist too, or I haven't been jovial or um, kind of, I'm a goofy person. So justice work and ministry is really serious. <laughs> right. And it really, and I love it and it's rewarding, but if I haven't made a joke or done something just for the heck of it, or I start getting, um, I start getting bitter and resentful. I, I can tell in my sermons, I can tell in my work that I'm like, Rah, and I'm brash. And so I have a friend who's really goofy, who's kind of like my person that I probably will hang out with when I need some self-care in that area or a lighthearted Angela has not been nurtured or hasn't been expressed. Um, and that's how I personally manage. I can feel my body after traveling. I haven't ran in four weeks. I can feel my body going, hey, you need to get back out there. Or when I am only having fun, I feel that too. When I'm super lighthearted, super active, and I haven't thought deeply about my other as it relates to ministry, I start feeling too much on that way. And so it's not sophisticated articulation, but I look at my social identities. Um, I say that because I do a lot of racial justice work and I find myself mostly speaking with pr pr predominantly white Christian churches around race. And after about a year, I realized there are moments where I had to put myself in around black women and talk about issues of my hair or cultural issues to fill me back up because all the time I spent was talking about oppression as it relates to my black identity. Mm. But I really wasn't talking about something that had nothing to do with oppression about my black identity. Mm -hmm. And I would get um, drained and I didn't realize, I was like, oh, I need to go not talk about racism as it relates to my black identity. Um, or at least be around, be around having conversations about my identity that is a different kind of conversation. And so that was a pretty big self-care lesson. I didn't realize after about a year, oh man, I have, I have to fill myself back up in a different kind of way. Um, so I'm really attentive to my identities and mm -hmm. I tell it to my pastors like you're a pastor so when do you get to do crude jokes <laughs> right <laughs> like you know there, there should be a space for that in your life and if we don't carve out spaces for these parts of us that our role doesn't allow us to have it those needs get met in unhealthy ways under the surface or can eventually come out because you know they're not being met and we're human we need those needs to be met um just on a health situation, so Okay, and then there's this whole idea that Walter Brueggemann wrote a book, but I'm sure he's not the only one that has ever thought this idea, but um, that Sabbath is a practice of resist resistance to the empire, or I guess the way of not saying that in a reactive response, like negative way would be like Sabbath is a practice of abundance. Um, can you say some about that and what you think about that idea? Yeah, um, that has been so close to me recently. Um, and I, I only know it through these terms. So I'm, I, don't want to be, I love how you did the positive side because I think I'm a bit more reactionary. But um, I really struggle with the pressures and demands that society puts on as it relates to like um, capitalism or money. Like, so much of our values is based on how much we're worth or how much we can earn or what we do can earn us money. And so as the relationship to money becomes, you know, like talk about scarcity, like we need, we have this relationship to money where it will really control our behaviors and control us because we feel we need it and we do to survive in some ways. Um, and so self-care, I tell people is, there's no economic gain for self-care. <laughs> like it has no capitalistic value. And so it's very hard to do because you're doing it just to have an abundance of life. It is purely just to enjoy the parts of life that I believe God has allowed us to enjoy. So having a, a good laugh with a friend at karaoke is not gonna make me more money, but it's gonna make me rich in virtues that are for my benefit so I can taste my life. Mm. And so the resistance, I think, self-care is really resisting, I would say, this kind of relationship we have with 
anything we do should earn us money, should give us clout, should make us powerful, should push us up the pecking order. Self-care, I would say, for me at least, it does the opposite. It is not going to benefit my prestige or clout. I think over time, it makes me a whole person. So I think people are just more attracted to my work. And yes, I'm probably better at my work, so it could make me more lucrative. But I can't do self-care to be more successful. In fact, I'm doing self-care to be more whole, which is a direct, um, to me, a, um, a direct counter to being successful. And I think that's why it's hard for us to do if we're honest with ourselves, because it will call us to these parts of ourselves that break out of norms. So a clergy woman who's really prophetic, um, I play football. And when I talk about playing football, I'm not prophetic on the football field. I'm not nice. I'm not therapeutic. <laughs> I'm not ministerial. I'm aggressive. And if you become between me and the ball, I will run you over. <laughs> and that is meant for a good sermon, you know? <laughs> but it makes for a great angel that I can get my aggression out. When I mm. think about the aggression I have about the systemic injustice I, I see every day, I go on that football field and it comes out. And, and it's only for that reason. It is not for any other reason. It's not going to give me a good sermon. It could, but not really. <laughs> so it's the relationship to why I do self-care. I don't do self-care to be more successful. I do self-care to purely enjoy the abundant life God has offered me in the moment, not in the future. Mm-hmm. And that, there you will, to me, if you think about it that way, you will always be tempted to not take care of yourself because there is no gain other than being whole and being happy, um, which is our gain, but it isn't, it, well, I don't think it's lucrative. I don't think that's the meaning for it. So, um, and then who we are in terms of identities, Sometimes being resistant is is part of resistance because if you are a marginalized identity or someone who doesn't have that same power, you affirming that I'm worth being taken care of myself directly connects the ethos that somehow your life or your identity doesn't matter. Mm. So if you take care of yourself, you're kind of saying, well, yeah, it does, and mm-hmm. I'm going to do it, even though the world may not affirm that. Um, those are the two things in my head when I think about what it means to take care of myself. Yeah, I love that. You know, there's so many men, that, well, maybe women too, but definitely men that do a good old football sermon. <laughs> you got one in there somewhere. <laughs> Although, usually if it's like a football sermon, that's, some, that's the moment that I'm turning off, like I'm not listening anymore. I'm like, okay, I moved on. <laughs> I, think, I think you named something that when we... When we really self take Sabbath just because it's our right as you know people, I think it always translates to powerful ministry, to powerful work, to our vocation, or what we're called to do. But I have seen you talk about this craze, this trend around self care. I do think it's being again co opted by I'm going to do this so I can be a better somebody, and I'm like that's exactly when you lose sight of what it is. It mm. can't be motivated. To be better, yes, to be better, but not to be more successful because the, mm-hmm. the real God or the real motivation is still, you know, conforming to the norm of that I'm worth how much I can make versus it is worth, Angela, to have a good joke. Every, I'm just that, I, it's okay that I can laugh, have a belly laugh because I deserve that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not just going to make me a better preacher, you know. Right. <laughs> have good belly laughs I think it does help my preaching but I can't do it for that reason mm-hmm. you know yeah I love that yeah. well who who do you think of when you think of someone that's doing a really good job of embodying Sabbath as um, or a Sabbath as resistance or Sabbath into abundance or self-care like who out there in the world should people look at or be reading about that you think is doing this well Ooh, that's a good question um, I find, and this I'm going to explain my answer because it's going to be like, wait, what? Um, as a therapist, as someone who sits, well, when I was doing therapy, sat with somebody um, intimately, it's always hard for me to see people in their public life and actually know if they're doing it. Um, just because you have your public life and then you have the person. So I would, I'm thinking of people I actually know, that people I actually have a personal relationship with um, that may or may not look like someone on the outside that might, but um, personally, and then, and then there's an archetype of person. So I'll start with the archetype of person. Um, I love artists. I'm from LA, 
was raised in Hollywood and I love seeing artistic people who you can tell in their music or their films that they are expressing them. Like you can always say, oh, that's a, that's a Steven Spielberg film. That's, a, that's an Adele song. Adele has a particular content that you know she is expressing who she is. And so I love it when artists go into the, the studio is a term like they have this major tour, this major CD, and then they disappear for four years. Mm-hmm. And people are like, what happened to them? And I'm always like, they're self-caring. They know, they know they're amazing and they know they're, they're so amazing that they can go fall off the face of the earth, live life, have babies, whatever they're going to do. And when they come back five years later, you feel in their music, wow, they've lived. And I hear it in their music, I see it in their film. So archetypes of artists who don't continue to make hits or they're always in the movies or they're always, they, they disappear and fade in and out. I love seeing that. And they're usually those people who last over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think of um, uh, like um, Adele, Michael Jackson, you know, Beyonce does that. I, not so much their music I love, but you can see them fall off and come back, fall off and come back. And I always appreciate that. Personally, I've been in ministry with some pretty solid women pastors and I'll lift up to Reverend Dr. Dietra Wise Baker, who's a personal friend, who I know her personally and have walked with her journey around what does it mean to be a dominant woman with an anointing, who does her thing in the community and also self-cares. And so um, I respect how she does that, how she navigates and balances her strong anointing and her social life and her personal life and taking care of herself. And Reverend Dr. Um, Cynthia Hale, who's a pastor Ray of Hope, a Christian church. Reverend Deidre Wise is also the program coordinator of advocacy and activism at an MBA and currently the Dean of Students at Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Cynthia Hale is the senior pastor of um, uh, Ray of Hope. And I'm learning her, I'm, I'm getting to know her, and I, we've had some really cool conversations where I admire her as being someone who has held the stage, held, you know, um, this kind of uh, um, fame and or like uh, respect from a wider community and just to hear how she has, has navigated you know her identity it seems like she held it intact through it all which is very hard to do I think when you're really successful and so I typically am admired by people who are you can you can hear the authenticness of who they are in their work whether it's a sermon or a song or their activism you're like oh that is a Reverend Wisebaker type of action. <laughs> that is her stamp on it. Um, people who kind of don't have a signature, I tend to not gravitate towards. It's not that I don't respect their work, but I'm curious about where they are in the midst of it and how connected to themselves they are. Um, and I think the only way to have a signature kind of song or a, a way of style is you have that time in between to sit with yourself and let yourself evolve. Mm. And so you check out, you drop off, and you come out of the demand. People want you to keep producing, and they want you to keep being somebody. And I love it when people are bold enough to go, nope, I'm going to go to the beach, or I'm going to literally not write a book, or I'm going to step away from my work, let myself live like any other human. And then they usually come back with some amazing stuff because they lived. Um, their identity is not a product of the demand that, that whole demand scarcity their identity is authentic and it's it's organic and then they show us that part um, so I would say personally those two people I'm getting to know um, and then in terms of people who hold that stage and I love artists I like like watching I don't love their music so much but like I, I follow Drake <laughs> Because I'm just fascinated by like his music. I'm like, that is such a Drake song. And it's just interesting to see him change or, you know, people change over their career and go like, wow, they're staying true to themselves or they're not. But um, I don't know if that makes sense. No, I love that. And I, I feel myself leaning towards scarcity. I need to get myself out of there because I feel like I want permission. I want I want everybody to think that like that so that when I'm in a fallow moments that everybody sees that and they're like, oh yeah, I see what's happening here. This is a moment of the seed is in the ground and we're gonna wait to see what happens rather than looking at us and being like, well, they done lately. They're not, you know, they're not active or why haven't they been to meetings or whatever. And so hearing you say that, it's just like, oh, please, everybody grab onto this idea because sometimes I participate in things out of fear that if I don't go, 
then, or if I don't do such and such, or I don't post enough stuff that people will think that I'm not worthy. Um, and so, yeah, so you saying that is just like, oh, I want everybody to think that way. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's crazy. Well, I mean, I think like it could be that they actually think that way, you know, but I fear that they don't. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the, the respect I see when I see it because I think as a clinician, as someone who's gone through really tough self-care pop-ups, like messed up and, and went dark because I had to go dark because I was not healthy. There's a cyclical nature to growth and to health that, you know, there's seasons. We go dormant in the winter and then there's spring. And I think, um, and I, you know, I, I have a bias. I think capitalism says you always have to produce, keep mm-hmm. producing. The people who produce the most make the most money. Whereas net body says you got to sleep. Mm-hmm. You got to stop and have relationships. Um, the word of God, well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Christian pastor, so I'm into the word, but there's a season and a time for everything, right? There's a time to kill. There's a time to have peace. There's, there's these timings, but you, capitalism doesn't allow for that. Um, and people's that like um, what the I would say the norm, not people, but the norms we follow. It's always going to demand what it wants at the time. And so I really think it's a powerful gesture when somebody knows enough their call that can step away, just despite them thinking that because they it, they will. I think that's the nature of the beast that that energy to always want a demand of something is going to usually say, oh, she must have, you know, something must be happening in their their family or she must have fell off or she must have, you know, something happened to her because she's not producing what I want her to mm-hmm. produce. Um, and it is, it's a security thing. It's for me to go, I'm secure in myself knowing that this is a dormant time for me and I'm going to go back in the studio. And when I come back in five years, I'm going to have the biggest track and it's going to blow the, the records because it's real and it's my real life. It's not something I contrive to meet what you want. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. I wish more activists did think that. In fact, that's part of my passion is how do we as activists know that the fight will continue to be there and we have seasons where we'll be in it. And I think if we're more balanced, if we have healthy relationships, if we tend to our partners and our children and our churches or our friends, we shouldn't feel guilty for enjoying an abundance and then going back and fighting. That's a balance that is hard to keep. Yeah, right. Always need a reminder. Well, are there um, any resources, books, podcasts, shows that um, that you are intrigued by right now? Yeah, um, I'll be honest. I have not, and I'm just going to be frank, I have not been reading a lot. And I have not been, or at least reading um, current, I read a lot of theory. So I'm, I'm in my books mostly. Um, and I think right now, I, I feel like going back to some of the wisdoms I've heard before, so some of my theoretical books, that coupled with um, honestly nature has been an interesting conversation um, for me in my personal life. Um, I have been thinking about, I've, reached out to um there's a couple podcasts that I, I i've listened to um and these little some people love them don't but rob bell has one that um i think is interesting and so i i name it as i always listen to podcasts and go like hey what's happening in the world um but i don't i won't i won't say that i found one that is really ministering to me mm. per se around this issue and i don't think that because the, there isn't one out there um, I think I'm in a studio moment, to be honest, and there's a quieting around voices and everybody else's articulation of what's happening. And so I found myself right now going back to some of my books from seminary. Um, I'll, I'll name a few of them because I, they have been speaking to me in ways that I'm like, whoa, 10 years ago I didn't hear that. Um, one of them wasn't in seminary a little bit after, but um, Melanie Harris is a womanist theologian that I, I, I know personally, so I respect her personally and professionally. And she has a book, um, Gifts of Virtue, Alice Walker and Womanist Ethics. She talks a lot about eco-womanism, and I, in my personal life, whether it's professionally, spiritually, have been really interested in, in indigenous beliefs or indigenous culture, because it feels untouched by these norms that I am tempted by. And so I think she's done a great job in her work lifting up this kind of indigenous ideology and translating it in, in a 
in an ethos or belief system that I'm used to, so Christianity or, you know, U.S. culture, um, kind of taking me back to these roots that I had no access to because of my identity. I didn't, I, as a black woman, I don't have an indigenous culture that I know of. Um, so I'm really interested in learning indigenous cultures. I haven't found a podcast, but I do hang out. Um, I, I, ironically, I frequent different religious sites <laughs> for fun. Like I go to different spaces of worship to learn about what it means to them and really been in a community with people. And that coupled with sitting in nature and then reading these theoretical books, um, Gustav Gutierrez, Liberation Theology, and James Cohen, Black Liberation Theology, I've been frequenting recently, Katie Cannon's, all her work around women's theology, kind of these foundational belief systems, and then coupling it with my current life has been how I've been feeding my soul right now. Um, I'm looking for a good podcast, so if you know I've heard of any, um, I just have, it's not that they're not out there, I just really have been in a space where everybody else's articulation feels overwhelming for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to hear my own voice in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another thinker, Kate Ott, who's a perfect, perfect personal friend of mine. Um, and I'm really big on, I need to know your personal life and your professional for me to fully buy into your work. <laughs> because otherwise I feel like I might be led to a ditch. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm moving into space. But she's, her and Melanie Harris wrote a book, Faith, Feminism, and Scholarship, The Next Generation. And I just found some really cool creati- creativity so the content itself isn't speaking to Sabbath, but right now I'm very energized by artists. I just, I love it when an artist puts their soul on a paper or on, you know, and so I think Kada and Melanie Harris are both um, really cool um, theological artists. And when I see them move in their true essence, it inspires me to go, okay, what, like, what is my vibe? If I'm an athlete, how do I put that in a sermon or, you know, um, so I'm following people I like. Uh, whether it's their sermons or their books or their art. Um, I have uh, actually R.C. Gorman's a Native American artist. And if you know anything about him, his work, there he paints beautiful women, Native women. Um, and the reasons why he makes their feet big or the reasons why he uses his colors, it just inspires me. I mean, he is so, um, he articulates his belief through his painting. So I've been following his stuff recently. Mm-hmm. Um, the hodgepodge of art, of writers, of actual artists. I follow singers. Uh, Big Crit is a rapper. Um, he's been out for a while. I love his new song, Mixed Messages. It's got profanity in it for people who may not love it, but <laughs> he, he's so authentic. He talks about like, I want to do this thing, but I don't want to do this. I want to be saved, but I'm anti this. And I love hearing authentic people um, express themselves and they give me creative ways to also express myself. Mm-hmm. So. I would say those those artists and those thinkers I've been following. Yeah. So I did pick up, I listened to a ton of podcasts. Um, my grandmother used to watch soap operas. I listened to podcasts. So, um, <laughs> but, um, so Faith and Leadership has a podcast out right now called Can These Bones? And um, it's basically like, is there is there life in this church? You know, in the church. Um, yeah. And so I found that to be really good and interesting. So suggest that to you as a podcast. I'm looking. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, a book that I've been telling everybody about is called Emergent Strategy. It's by Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian Marie Brown is not a Jesus person, which is why it feels very refreshing to me. And so Adrian Marie Brown took the novels of Octavia Butler and loved them, fell in love with them, studied them, and now has taken the themes and plots and characters and written out this description of how the world works given these perspectives from the science fiction writing and how change can happen and how change is and um, how movements happen. Her mentor was Grace Lee Boggs, who is in Detroit. Detroit. Um, in community development work. And so um, just really interesting and refreshing way to describe how growth and uh, creation happens. And so anyway, it's a very, very good book. I'm so excited. I've heard so many great things about Octavia and I, my friend said, you have to read her stuff and to hear someone make sense of it. I'm like, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Right. Um, so I definitely look into that. Yeah. Like, 
a book that I'm not currently reading, but really the transitional book for me during my self-care, like a really tough self-care moment, was Woman Who Run With The Wolves. Um, that book is a similar element of uh, what is it, young in psychology um, and folklore, mm. um, at least like uh, ancient um, kind of wisdom stories or texts that, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Clarissa Pincola Essies is the author. She weaves in her psychological understanding into these old folklores, almost kind of like how we as people of God might use Christian texts and make meaning. She makes meaning through her theory. And it just changed the idea of what a woman archetype might be and helped me, again, be open to being my full self in that way. But I'm hearing about Adrienne Marie Brown, it's, it feels similar, like mm-hmm. this kind of heavy articulation. I love that, that kind of work. Um, yeah. So I'm gonna look into that. Yeah, you should, it's really good. Okay, one last thing. Is there anything in childhood pop culture that has brought you into who you are? Or into one of those characters that you named of who you are? <laughs> I love this. This is going to sound, this is my corny self. Man, Lisa Frank speaks to my soul. <laughs> if anybody knows Lisa Frank is, she just to be like trap keepers and folders. And the reason, as a kid, the reason why I loved it, the colors, they were so explosive of just, they didn't follow lines. They were interesting. Um, I love color, and I love um, a lot of stuff happening in a moment. And so I find myself um, thinking about like how I would I, I collect all her stuff. And I was like, why is my kid self so into this? But there's something dynamic about this color and these like things going on in her work. Um, I was really into um, different songs that were you could belt. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So all like Disney soundtrack songs or at least like songs that were very emotional and passionate songs I find as a kid, I was really into. And then getting older, I think uh, Lauren Hill's Unplugged. So she got really big, but there's other CD that a lot of people critique her because they say this is when she lost herself. But if you hear her words, she's being clear about her. Um, she had hit a moment. She had had some sort of mental health issue or relational issue. And it was the first time that I saw her almost step away from her fame and go, forget that. I'm going to tell you the truth about I'm wrestling with even being famous. And you could hear it in her words. And I always was like, she's transitioning, she's transforming, and she's putting it in music. And it's really what made her not popular anymore. Like, people were like, oh, she's lost it. I love that Unplugged CD, all of it. I come back to it often because um, it just felt real and authentic. Mm. Uh, so when people, I like people who get vulnerable in public. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. do it brilliantly and it, it doesn't um, it's not it's a healthy emotional boundary because they don't lose themselves in it but you could tell they're really wrestling with something big and they're free enough to share it and they do it in art or they do it in a way that is consumed and taken on and they're not afraid they're not afraid to be critiqued um, I think of James Cohn who was a, my professor who recently passed and been sitting with his passing and been emotional in, in ways, but one thing that I sit with is, here's a guy who said his piece, whether you agree it or not, he stuck by it, um, and him sticking so strong in his authentic belief made everyone find their own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people who didn't like it, people who fought with it, and I'm like, that is a true artist or a true anointed person who was like, I'm gonna be me, and you're gonna love it or hate it, but me being me is gonna make you be you. It's gonna yeah. make you pick you, and that, Anybody who can do that um, is really cool to me. So mm, I love that. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for our um, time to chat. Is there any last like word or phrase you just want to tell the whole world on this podcast? <laughs> I know. Um, I guess I um, just want to encourage us to. I feel like now is the time to be our full selves. I mm. think everybody's saying it. Um, but I do think we're spiritually, culturally, politically, we're in a shift. Um, generationally, we're in a shift. And I think we all are images of God. And they're unique and funky and they don't fit norms and they're not lucrative. And I think we be it and it will become successful in whatever we're supposed to. So I just feel like I want to encourage us all to really be fully us. Um, and it's gonna look funky, it's not gonna come out right. And I think that's the beauty of it. Um, mm-hmm. 
and it may take you may get famous you may not and it's and both visions are important like being your full self if it's needed for the world you'll be seen if it's not it's not but it's still needed Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I, I, I think that's what I'm telling myself now like you know this whole temptation to have your brand to be somebody you know to be seen and and I feel like I'm really sitting with like, I'm dope because I am, not mm. because people know I am. And the people closest to me be like, Angela, you're just, you're so you. And I really appreciate that. And I'm taking that as like, that is success for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and living in that and being okay with not having to reach some sort of, you know, affirmation in normal ways, but being my full self just because. Um, I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Starting in June, QC Family Tree families are hitting the road. We're taking folks as close as Cramerton, Salisbury, and Boone, and as far as Folly Beach, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. Our upcoming adventures will include explorations of new places, connection to new people and partners, and learning a lot about history, creation, and each other along the way. Our plans span a lot of miles, and we could use your support. Would you commit to sponsoring a mile for $20? Even better, maybe you could get 20 of your friends to each sponsor a mile for $20. Every little bit helps. Go now to qcfamilytree.org donate and help us get on the road. I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Barranquilla, and Padilla, I'm a killer, I've been everywhere, man. Thanks for listening to Here for Good. Here for Good. Here for Good. Sponsored by QC Family Tree. 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 Here for good! Here for good! I was gonna say, I don't wanna say it.